0: Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we are stoned, immaculate.
1: Indeed, we are. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be a band, the whole band. Well, three quarters of the band. It's the Silent Boys, all the way from Virginia, the USA who, um, yes, were happening in the mid-60s. That's a lie, in the mid-80s. And um, then they disappeared. Then they have come back recently with a new album, which they're very excited by. And, um, yes, if you want to know any more information about them, they have a very good website, which is thesilentboys.com. And they're also on... The Facebook, hurrah! But um, after several minutes of um, getting to know each other, which you do in the world, that is showbiz, and trying to work out the technology, which you do when you're old, um, we got down to the very exciting question of who is who in the band? Well, what voices relate to what member? And um, so I think we're going to kick it off there, because then you, the listener, hasn't have a vague idea who's going to be talking and who isn't. But anyway, this is the conversation. And uh, as I said, they have a new album, single, and uh, have been active, which in this day and age is a very good thing. Anyway, it's over to the band, the Sil- Silent Boys, not the Silver Boys. No, the Silent Boys. Anyway, take it away.
0: Okay, this is John Suhaki. I am the lead guitarist.
2: And this is Wallace Deets. I'm the singer, songwriter, and rhythm guitarist.
3: And
0: I'm
2: John Morand. I am the
1: drummer. Excellent. This is good. And I can see from your profile the rhythm guitarist vocals and lyrics. So, this is good. So, look, I do do this show called the C86 show, which I've been doing for over three years and been interviewing like a lot of bands from that period. So um yes, been hearing the life story, that life story of the band. So is it possible to get a little bit of a background of, of how The Silent Boys came into being and, and sort of what was kind of happening in your lives during that period?
2: Uh, well, it's a bit of a long story. <laughs> long uh-huh. time ago. Uh, when I, I started playing guitar when I was in college, And I played a lot of basketball, and I I messed up the pinky on my cording hand. So my pinky is pretty useless. So I wanted to learn how to play guitar. And I love Neil Young, huge Neil Young fan. And so he was one of the few artists where if he bought his chord books from the um, music stores, Neil Young was actually playing those chords. He was playing a lot of open, folky chords, too. So I gravitated to that and learned a lot of his songs and then um one summer i bought an album by the feelies called crazy rhythms and i'm going oh my goodness they were doing these new wave crazy rhythms and and a little bit of a post-punk sound but they were taking those open chords and just playing them really fast so i was going i could do this maybe i can even start a band and one of my um, fraternity brothers in college just had these Kool-Aid cans he would set up and just hit him with drumsticks and we would make up songs and play parts of Feely songs and and things like that. And eventually we went to grad school together and one of our roommates was a musician and was in a surf rock band. And um, I wrote some songs, barred his guitars, went to the studio with this guy worked landscaping with. He was a top 40 um, heavy metal, played in a top 40 heavy metal band. And we all went to the studio and made up these songs, really primitive songs. One of them even sounded a little bit like early fall. And then I went to a friend's house to play the cassette tape I'd made at the studio. And that was John Suhaki, the lead guitarist. And he was all excited and just thrilled and just was really interested in what we, you know, how we had made these recordings and what these songs were like. And and so we started, well, I found out later, he didn't, Think much of the music. The music was kind of different for him. He was playing mostly la la music. Well, I call it la la music, really James Taylor ish, really light folk kind of stuff. So we started jamming together, and I started to play him Echo and the Bunny Man and New Order, some post punk um, guitar playing like that. And he just absorbed it right away and, and added it to his folk stylings and created his own unique style of guitar playing. And the joke is, since then, he gets no mixtapes. I keep him just totally out of music. I just don't want his... I want his sound to stay pure and not change at all. So he's not allowed to listen to any music, any other guitar players.
1: Yes. So look, so what... Generally, because... because. Um, I put indie pop down between the years of 83 to 87, which is, you know, roughly the years of the Smiths as, as a sort of golden period in the UK, especially. And I know the, the, the USA, there was a slightly different musical scene. So what, what, what sort of year was this when you, were, when you sort of began sort of forming the band?
2: Well, it would have been um, when I was in college. I was in college in, um, from 79 to 83, Mm-hmm. So I was listening to Joy Division, The Cure, New Order, all these sorts of things. Yes. And then once I went to graduate school, um at you know the mid eighties, I was um going to this record store called Plan Nine in Richmond and they'd get the British um you know the, they'd get all these British tabloids, they'd get the sound, any e. me, and Melody Maker. I was reading them every week to get to hear about the latest bands come out of England. Then when I heard about the Smiths I was just wow! This charming man, I, you know, got that single and was just in love with that style of music. Yes, and what, on and well, and
1: what part of America was this?
2: Richmond, Virginia. R-
1: right. So there, there you go. It was happening. And were there? And was it generally? Because, because it's hard to imagine nowadays um, with the internet and everything. But you know, every in those days, things did take a lot longer to. Um, sort of, I suppose, travel because, you know, things like you mentioned the NME and and sounds and Melody Maker were really big. And at the time, and in this country, you know, I realised, looking back at it, you know, we had the kind of gatekeepers, to, to sort of give it a phrase. You know, there was a DJ called John Peel in this country who played a lot of the kind of indie bands and especially anything quite obscure and strange. That daytime, Radio 1 didn't play, but he would play it. And he was on most evenings for about two or three hours, So at the time, even though I wasn't part of any scene, I would record his evening show and then listen to it the next day and the next few weeks, you know, and still have those tapes, the John Peel tapes. And I realised that, you know, there was, you know, people like me, but mostly sort of living, you know sort of not in a particular scene or in a gang, but, you know, in our little bedrooms on our own, listening to all this kind of obscure and interesting stuff and people thinking, you know, at the time, you know, the, the mainstream hated the Smiths and, and hated Morrissey's voice and hated his lyrics. But then, well, that's, you
2: know, the, that's the funny part. When I was reading those tabloids um, on a weekly basis, I, when, the, when Sarah Records came out, they, all the reviewers were slagging, um, the sea urchins, that song Christine Christine, and they were slagging the orchids and making fun of all these fake sissy bands. And but I could read between the lines because they were also mentioning the Velvet Underground and they were mentioning the birds and this jangly pop and really emotional music. And I was going, Boy, that sounds like I'm really gonna like that. So I started pair <laughs> of Records, but I already liked Aztec Camera, I knew about but yes. it didn't- Records came along, and I've I've got every single. In fact, I have the C eighty six album vinyl.
1: Oh my god, that's so impressive! I am I am impressed. Yeah, because in a in a funny sort of way, you know, you had that you know roughly, and there was other scenes inside, but you had the punk scene in the seventies and post punk with bands like you know Magazine and Pill and Gang of Four, and then and then you had a sort of, there was a bit of the new romantic scene and that electronic world that was, you know, Depeche Mode and Soft Cell and then Duran Duran, and that was kind of the mainstream. But then you had the indie sound, and that sort of ran through quite a bit of the 80s. But then a lot of the bands that I interviewed and, and loved, kind of started to sort of peter out towards the end of the 80s and a lot of it was the fact that most people who've been in a the band, they survive about five years and then they sort of grow to hate each other and fall out and normally that's the end of the band. But then you also got the scene that changed in from the indie scene that there was the dance scene, so ecstasy came along and suddenly everybody was starting to think, no, we all want to sound like the you know Primal Scream, the Stone Roses... The happy mondays so that so that kind of w- right. w- wiped out a lot of those bands but then you had the as you said there the, the sarah record world that came along with all this kind of slightly melancholic angst and and again it didn't seem like a big scene and the, and the music papers really hated it luckily john Peel kind of gave it some airplay but, but bizarre, bizarrely sarah records now is probably bigger now than it was back then
2: yeah, but it didn't get much coverage. You know, on the college radio stations around here, they were playing The Smiths a lot, you know, The Cure, um, New Order. They were getting heavy radio play here on college radio, and that's what I was listening to. But they were not playing Sarah record, you know, and they weren't even playing like The June Broads or The Brilliant Corners or anything, um, or The Felt, anything like that.
1: Yes, and so it sounds like you were sort of, you, you were absolutely on it. On the sort of like that indie old alternative zeitgeist, you know, you, you sort of definitely picked up on all these particular obscure bands.
2: But yeah. I was, and I like some of the baggy stuff too. Like you said, when everything started going baggy, that Manchester kind of scene with the Happy Mondays and that sort of thing. Yes. Um, I like some of the, I like The Farm and I like a few bands here and there at the, with the charlatans weren't they one of them yes the
1: charlatans came along as well so then when did you get your first you know studio moment and recording
2: well we recorded a lot in the mid 80s um but our sound would have been more like the feelies more um new wave more post-punk and towards the end we recorded we have a, a cd of recordings out called progression that takes all of our songs, well, the best of our songs from 85 to 1991, I believe. And towards the end, I was getting more influenced by C86. So I was starting to write songs that were more pop. Wrote a song called Saturday and people change like the weather. And when we kind of broke up the band, I wanted to go that route. That was like the blueprint for future recording. So things that really were more affected by C86. And and I, I couldn't play, I'm not, because of my finger, I never sit and try to copy what other people are doing or figure out what chords they're playing because I wouldn't be able to do it anyway. So I really can't do like the style that Sarah does, even though I would like to. So I guess I gravitated more to the C-86. Yeah. has rougher edges, but still melancholic and some... Um, a little bit of toughness
1: to it, I guess. Yeah, because most bands in this, you know, a lot of bands anyway that I've interviewed, they have that five-year narrative. They, you know, they get together, they, they spend a year, eighteen months, making a bit of a sound. You know, John Peel picks up a single, which is kind of quite quirky and interesting because he, that's what he seems to pick up on. They get a John Peel session, they you know record three or four songs. They do the first album, things are going well. The second album, not so good. And if any bands in the UK tour America, that completely finishes them. And they come back and break up. And bizarrely, you do have a five-year narrative, don't you? Well,
2: what, what happened was, is so um, John Husier, Sue Hockey, the lead guitarist, he left the country to go teach community college in Hawaii. And so that's when I and I started having children. And so I just put my guitar aside for eight years. But then I met um, Peter Hondorf. Who was running um, TweeNet? Oh and, yes, um, and he had the record label that he had. So he was here for a music festival, and I met him and played him some of the Solemn Boy stuff we recorded in the mid '80s. And he goes, "I like that." And so he put Saturday on one of his compilations, and then another indie label um, out of California, a small Twee label, put out a song and Fire Station Records. Um, put out a song and so I started thinking maybe I better pick up the guitar so after eight years I picked up the guitar and started playing again Wrote some songs and called up uh, the album's called Princess by the Sea called up John Sue and said you got to come to Richmond let's just record these seven or eight songs that I have we exchanged uh, cassette tapes back and forth it was 99 yeah 1999 right and so he comes come, to, come into Richmond to now John Moran the drummer was our engineer at the time, and he did play on some tracks. We had drummers come and go in the '80s, and John Moran, our current drummer, every now and then we pull him in to play some tracks. But when we reformed in 1999, I wasn't—I didn't know he cared, and so I got some other guy to play drums. And found out later that John was like, "Man, why didn't you ask me?" And so since then, he's been our official drummer. Excellent, Then, our- but he's—he also. So, you know, he's an engineer and he's head of a, in fact, we're sitting at Sound and Music Studio. I'm a partner with it now. And um, John Moran, he's the head engineer there and owns the studio. So he records all sorts of bands. Um, yes. So we started, we got, got back together in 1999 and I think it's, we've done eight albums total. Our eight, eighth album is about to come out in May.
1: Excellent. This is good. And you recorded these on Walrus Records. Was this an indie label from America?
2: It's my own. It's my own label. But when I played a lot of basketball, there was a little kid at the basketball, uh, at the playground where he used to play, and he couldn't say my name, Wallace. He called me Walrus. Nice, Wallace. So I just started calling it Walrus Records.
1: Oh, fantastic. So when you listen, (laughs) when you listen back to your compilation progression, eighty-six to ninety-one, yes. What, what do? What are your memories of that?
0: You, You
2: yeah you and and being in the studio and like vacation just hanging out in the studio all day all night um drinking beer eating 7-eleven hot dogs yeah, 7-11 just 8-11. junk eating junk food and just having a you it was, it, yeah it was a lot of passion and, love. <laughs> and also a lot of times i didn't have the lyrics all prepared so there was a little bit of um stress and anxiety and i think that kind of is good for music sometimes i usually like bands' first albums because there's a there's a sense of urgency, or this, you know, they're not, they're they're a little scared and worried and nervous, and I think that makes the music more exciting sometimes because it might fall apart at any second. So there's a little some tension there. So I think progression is a good word too because we, we clearly
3: did progress in terms of the overall quality and the focus of the music. Yes, and I think I believe, and then the last couple of years it's accelerated even more as. You know as we've all been involved in the music business again a
2: little bit more and um and we brought in a bass player we actually um all of our recordings up to a few years ago john sue the lead guitarist plays all the bass lines and the deals was we we found somebody here in richmond uh, michael click who couldn't make it here um so he's our permanent bass player
1: Yes, because cause, cause you the 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 you definitely have urgency, don't you? Because most people have the urgency when they're young, and they and they sort of you know have that intense period, like the Smiths. They were on it for five years. They you know released probably an album a year at least. You know at the at the minimum they were torn all the time, and eventually the whole thing becomes too much, and the wheels fall off, and it ends. In a messy way, whereas whereas you sort of did the first, you know, album, which is a kind of I suppose it's a collection and compilation of all your yeah. recordings, whereas actually in the O years, the noughties, as we've slightly called them, you know, you were bringing out almost an album a year for sort of. That that well, you brought out four albums in the decade, and then sort of two quite recently, with a third sort of coming. So, is it is it the case? Because often people have struggled you know, struggle to sort of know what they want to sing about, or all sort of, you know, getting inspiration. Whereas that seems to be sort of flowing more now than it did back then.
2: Well, I was a um, I just retired, but I was a school guidance counselor for thirty one years. So, you know, studying psychology, going to workshops, working with students and families, that gives you a lot to pull from to write songs. So a lot of my songs have a counseling theme. It might be a song about independence. It uh, might be a song about redemption.
0: Well, um, um, let me uh, add that yeah, in terms of lyrics, uh, that's certainly true. And Wallace is super strong on the lyrics, but you need to complement that with his strength on on melody finding (laughs) joey's got perfect melody yeah um and and some people have perfect pitch (laughs) i have perfect melody (laughs) and 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 it's it's always the search for that 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 perfect melody right and so that's there's just this wellspring of of creativity uh the i would say the lyrics are more craftsmanship uh though there's certainly craftsmanship in, in organizing the songs arranging them uh, but there's just this wellspring of creativity. Uh, and that, that at least for me, as the lead guitarist, is the, the funnest challenge is finding that perfect melody. Yes. And uh, like, uh, in, in a sense, it's like panning for gold. And every now and then you find these nuggets, and you're just like, wow, look at this nugget. And it just, it just so
2: not, it keep going. It's not that we're trying to develop our sound and add more production. Really, we're always trying to write the perfect pop song. I'm always trying to write the next This Charming Man, or the next Love Will Tear Us Apart, or "Or Wondering Where the Lions Are by Bruce Coburn. I mean, there's so many just fantastic songs out there that I get excited about. And and so a lot of bands, after their first, second, third album, they start to evolve and change and develop. And then they, they don't sound like they did, like the first few albums. But our sound is still true to its 80s roots. Yes. Um, one of the things too
3: about The Sound of Music is that we've had artists, everybody from Kills to Daniel Johnson to Sparkle Horse to Well Trucks to you name it, to Hanson to Guar whatever over the years. So there's been a lot of um, reasons to stay in touch with the music business and to um, sort of see that really that being what I call the survivors, the people that don't give up and get day jobs but just keep going um often end up in a position to be able to make really good music yes and we're lucky in that way and also and
1: just and just to ask you i mean because it is a bit of a cliche you know from interviewing bands mostly from the uk is that you know what is it about touring america that seems to finish them off so kind of smoothly or also efficiently? Because no one seems to be able to cope with uh, having sort of gone to America, done a bit of a tour, and then thinking, that's it, we're never doing that again. It's over.
2: Because we've never toured America
1: either.
3: (laughs) (laughs) It's It's a very big country, for one thing. It's kind of overwhelming. I can see that the idea that England is so compact, that something can be exciting in an entire country, Whereas America is just so gigantic. that You could be big in, different countries, say, 20 or 30 cities, you could be popular. But then the rest of the United States people are like, oh, I don't really know who you are. So in that way, I can see how like a band doing their first tour of America could kind of be overwhelmed by you're, you're the drives and just the whole you know, thinking that maybe coming into America was going to mean more than it did or something. Just like when bands go to England from here to tour, it's not it's expensive it's hard it's some um, you know it's exciting to do it but yeah it's it's the job part of being in position for I
2: sure. get, I
1: guess with the UK uh, you can virtually do the whole you know you could cover most of it within a week you know quite happily you can go from i don't know Glasgow down to Liverpool Leeds Manchester you know kind of down south to London Brighton Bristol and think well we've just about done it you know and do Dublin and Belfast and you think well I've you know and it's probably not going to finish you off physically whereas I think with America it probably you know is quite you know, I, know, I know a few people saying that you know, you'd be doing one of these kind of long drives and then suddenly you'd have to do a detour for three hours and go to a radio station to say, hi, we're, we're members of of the Unstoppable, Unstoppable Sex Machine for five minutes and then get back in the van and drive off for another four hours and thinking, why did we just go and do that for? You know, But it's like, oh, we were told to do it. But afterwards, realise it kind of finishes most bands off.
3: Exhausting. We'd like to come to England and tour there and see if it can, we can survive it. So yeah, we'll no, see no, what
1: no. happens. <laughs> yes, God knows, I don't know. Yes, well, yes, I think at the moment it's probably quite easy because the weather, I don't know, we've had a bit of, yeah, a bit of flooding, but apart from that, it's, it is small and quaint and full of historical interest. So look, having sort of got the band back together and doing it again, obviously you, you're avoiding the pitfalls of what being in the band's all about. So does that mean that you're sort of picking up new members, you know, audience members who, who sort of, who didn't hear for, hear you the first time? I just wondered what what sort of people are beginning to sort of uh, listen to the band again.
2: Well, what's what's kind of neat is that the. So we were just joking the other day that we haven't changed the settings on our amps and instruments since the eighties. We pretty much when we record and play, we keep all the settings pretty much the same, the effects and everything, and so. Here we are still being faithful to the eight, playing like we're in the '80s. But all of a sudden, in the United States, retro '80s is really kind of the thing now. If you listen to college radio, I think these um, the younger generation were growing up and listening to their parents, you know, record collections, and they were listening to the Smiths and the Cure and those sorts of bands and and the replacements. And um, so that college radio today isn't that far removed. Like there's a a record label in Brooklyn called Capture Tracks. Go and listen to those bands like the Wild Nothing and D.I.I.V. and the Minx. And they all have this 80s influence, this huge 80s sound. So it's kind of neat that here we are doing what we were doing in the 80s and have our roots there. But the music is still relevant today.
1: Yes, and what's well, quite interesting Having done this show Because I sort of, I, you know Without giving too much away I was born in my, in the mid-60s So the 70s was certainly a, an era That I remember watching Top of the Pops And listening to Radio 1 And being very excited about the charts You know, the charts were a really big thing Because bands would sort of be in the charts for weeks And you'd slowly go up And then you'd slowly go down But you know, it wasn't dramatic You didn't go at number one And then next week disappear You know, you went in at number 48 And then went down to number 30 And then number 20 So... You know that that everything took a little bit longer, but that does mean that you couldn't remember the past that much better because it, it was kind of there for much longer. But it was the 80s that was particularly a decade that I suppose instead of in the 70s, I was listening to a lot of bands who'd already been and gone like the Beatles and, you know, various other 60s bands like the Monkeys. I suppose we, you know, we all listened to because there was a TV show about the Monkeys, weren't there? And so it, the 80s was this kind of decade that I suppose I was listening to stuff that was happening in that moment rather than something that had been and gone. And then you know you sort of move on and you get get on with your life. But I just have no I've noticed that there's a passing of time between twenty five years to thirty where suddenly one looks back and starts thinking actually that was really good. You know, and Cherry Red Records, which is this label in the UK, just has has been bringing out so many compilations recently. I mean, a couple of years they years ago they did one on. Liverpool which was a five CD box set they did one on Manchester which was a seven CD box set they just done one Sheffield and then done one on Scotland and they're always bringing out compilations of bands material you know as well as all these other compilations and and I realised it's like well that's weird because they and they sell quite well well really well and so they did a C86 compilation which they increased it to 66 tracks and then they did one on C87, 88, 89 and then last 95. week, and then last week they did one on C90, you know, and again it was like 66 tracks, so it is interesting how how the music has become quite interesting, you know has become, I, I suppose kids are looking back, and as I, like I did when I was in the 70s looking back and they're looking back to the 80s Yeah, well when
3: selling points used to be a band there was no internet, and now there is an internet, of course, and so that's kind of an exciting tool, although it's, you know obviously had a negative impact on the music business overall. It's an exciting tool to use for us at this time, trying to sort of reach out and establish new fans. And so
0: people are finding music
3: in all kinds of ways now, which is interesting. I'm
0: I'm compelled to mention a story about my uh, daughter who's uh, in college right now. We're driving around and and I, I, I just put in the psychedelic furs, listening to the psychedelic furs, and she says, Dad, that's your band. (laughs) <laughs> like, no no my that, that's that's the psychedelic furs <laughs> that like, no it doesn't that sounds like the psychedelic furs
1: <laughs> yes and you must have been chuffed with that and i know that you know when you listen to um, any interviews with brendan brandon flowers from the killers he often he also talks a lot about the bands from the 80s that he listened to like the cure and the smiths as well so obviously you know that, even though he was in Las Vegas at the time, you know, the, the. I suppose it's like anything when you're young, you want to listen to something that isn't the mainstream, which was, uh, in our days, it was, it was, you know, Phil Collins and Genesis probably and Dire Straits. So that all seemed a bit, you know, boring compared to all those other obscure bands.
3: Uh, getting our first punk rock records from England when we were 16, you know, the, the God Save the Queen imported from France, seven-inch single, and the first records like that were huge, like that just opened up everything from like, you know, it doesn't have to be Aerosmith and it doesn't have to be whatever. And so in a way, I guess that way of discovering music and feeling special about it is always going on. And
2: when you don't have to be classically trained to be in a band too.
1: Yes, this is true. You, you you know, and when you're on, you know, I mean the C86 cassette, when you listen to it, it was 22 tracks and quite a lot of the bands, you know, the production was quite raw and rough, you know, like the Shop Assistants or We've Got a Fuzz Box or We're Going to Use It and the Mighty Lemon Drops, you know. So it was, quite, it was very interesting how, you know, it was just all about the passion and, and intro, you know, the, the sort of the, the feel of it. But you could tell that the bands probably weren't thinking that this is going to be a career for us, like, you know, someone like U2 or Simple Minds.
2: But but I think the point is that the younger generations, you know, twenty and thirty year olds now are are open to this sound. Where my generation, the fifty year olds, are still stuck in classic rock. They want to hear Aerosmith's easy top and, and Led Zeppelin and Rolling Stones. So when I play my friends, the music I'm doing, uh, they kind of roll their eyeballs in the back of their head. They don't get it. Yes. So yeah, did they you never, so as a it- and the cure and echo and the bunny man and all the sound and all that stuff like i was and but the 20 and 30 year olds when they hear the music they go hey this is chill this is really interesting
1: so did you feel like an outsider during this time was it very much like you know the, you know it was the music that you liked you weren't just listening to it to try and sort of well, i don't know be be cool uh, and interesting but actually you you were sort of that isolated you or alienated you
2: well, not really, because I've always made music for an audience of one, me. <laughs> we were also really lucky to have a great record store in our town,
3: which maybe every town doesn't have. But having a record store, that was kind of like your gateway to the bigger world of music. You drive there every week and see what right. records they get. Yeah, Plan 9 Records in Richmond was one of the best record stores still is. And so that was sort of our portal, like the internet would be now, I guess. you know.
2: Yes. But, but with the silent boys music we never worried what an audience how they would react what they would think we were just making music to make music and i was just trying to chase the perfect pop song and john sue was we sit down and we go through measure by measure of each song and work out each note every note is well placed every note is considered we go back and forth change the orchestration of the songs always trying to make it as catchy as possible. Um, we put a lot of time into um, arranging and creating melodies and even how I sing each vocal line of a song, I think about every, everything matters. Everything has to have some importance to the melody. Yes.
0: Even, if,
2: even if it's a verse, you still gotta sing it in such a way that it's memorable, it's catchy. So we're very painstaking like I said, I used to go to the studio in the 80s and write the lyrics as I was in the studio. Now I write them and go over them and go over them and then go over them and then keep. Because I'm scared to death that this, when it gets out there and it's recorded, I can't change it. And I don't want to have something out there and just wince it when I, why did I say that? I shouldn't have, that was, I even have my wife proofread, but I write, you know, edit it and say, Wallace, that's kind of cliche. That's kind of, everybody sings that. <laughs> So I'm always looking for an interesting image, a different way to say things.
1: Yes, and one thing that trips a lot of bands up is is kind of like the admin, the publishing. Did you because it was your label? Did you manage to navigate that kind of sometimes disappointing and and sort of confusing world without feeling like you'd all been ripped off?
0: We were pushing ourselves. Yeah, up, other than, that's the problem. Uh, we were not promoting ourselves. ourselves other than the, with the music itself. No promoter or anything. We. We we went on, because John moved from Hawaii
2: to Burlington, Vermont to Colorado, we've never been able to play live since we were formed. So what we'd do, we'd record an album. I'd, I'd order 500 copies, and they'd sit in a box, and I'd send, you know, in the early 2000s, I'd send 30 copies to, to magazines like The Big Takeover and to some other reviewers. And then we'd get about half, we'd get write-ups and Pretty much they were always positive for the most part. That was great. And that was it. That's all we did. And then we'd go to the next CD. But what I noticed was as the social media in- impact of that increased over the last 10 years, I'd say, those CDs are, were just sitting. I've got just last two CDs were just sitting in boxes. I did nothing with them. Because some of the places I used to send them to in the early 2000s no longer exist. They gave us all these good reviews. The whole terrain has changed. It's all, all driven by social media today. And so, for the first time for this new album that's coming out in May, we've decided, you know, we need probably need to promote it and do something <laughs> with this. So, <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> <I know>. My <laughs> wife has been bugging me. Why don't you do something with it? We are doing something. With and it. My, my wife, Carly, is actually handling all the social media. It's funny. We have um, we released one single, "Tilt a Whirl," with the video, and we hired a publicist, and she sent it to a friend who works for a national publication. Um, a national outlet, and he saw the song, heard the song, saw the video, and goes, wow, that's retro 80s, that's really big now, I'd like to do a story on this, but my editor won't touch it, and she goes, "Why? well, look at their Facebook numbers, Your, their Facebook numbers, they don't even, they have under 100 Facebook likes, followers, and, um, what was the other thing he said, it was the, um, there was something else that we were off on,
1: Playing live, well, you said playing live, but also just getting, you know, your social media
2: sites. (laughs) To this guy, the problem was that... Photos. Yeah, oh yeah. So all the photographs we sent as a part of the press kit, we'd never done a press kit before. This is the first time we've done a press kit. And all the photos we sent were like us playing at a picnic in our shorts and brightly colored clothes and just really informal pictures, low resolution. And so this guy goes... From the 80s. Yeah, from the 80s. And the editor's (laughs) like, I mean... My, he goes, my editor isn't going to do a story on this band. Look, look, they're low-resolution photos, and look at the song. It's so retro 80s. They need to do some pho- have a photo shoot and, and make it really black and white and grainy and moody, because their music really does sound like The Cure and The Smiths and those bands that have a lot of melancholy in them, and they need to play that up. So um, we're learning. Yes. And we did. We just had a photo shoot the other day, and the, the pictures really turned out well. We're really happy with the. And this, and this
1: is this one of the ones on the website, which is silentboys.com? Yeah, I think
2: I must have just put up one of those. And, and she took over Facebook and has been doing everything she can to build the numbers. And today we just hit 1,000 followers on Facebook.
1: Excellent. This is all very good. Yes, well, I, I just noticed that things are happening. So So um, so you so just briefly then, you've got a new album coming out this year.
2: Right, called Tilt to Whirl. It's due out in May. The next single is um last time and that's going to be the uh, video premiere of at the big takeover website so that's we're really happy about that that's one of the last few magazines left on the you know the magazine rack at barnes and nobles and you know on on a national level the big takeover and um so they're going to feature that video on march 19th
1: Excellent, and and just and um, just you know, kind of almost lastly, I mean, what would you what to, what would you say to all you know? What would you wish someone would have said to the eighteen-year-old self that was starting out on mu- you know in the world of music and the creative arts? As in, you know, what what have you learnt in those kind of decades of making music? You know, the experience of being in a band, being in that dynamic, dealing with you know releasing. All of it. I just wondered if there was something that you think, God, I wish someone had just whispered that into my ear.
2: No, I don't. Wow. I don't, that's a good, I, I don't know because I'm pretty happy with how things have evolved. For, and, and the thing is, the things people would whisper to me along the way were like, Wallace, you've got to make this more traditional sound and you've got to do change the music this way. And I'm glad I didn't listen to people and, and made music made the music that I wanted to, like I said, for an audience of one, made the music that I thought was really interesting and cool, and and just really give it a big dose of... Like, we have layers of melody. When John Suhaki was playing the bass, you know, we were playing like New Order, that the bass line was a melodic tool. So we... Yeah, high on the neck, all these high notes, so you could hear the melody in it, so it sounds like a guitar, like New Order. And so even we would craft melodies for the bass lines. and Like I said, for the vocals, I try to sing them in a way that's always catchy, or I get rid of them. And then John's guitar leads are all just infused with with melody. And I think for some people it's challenging to listen to because there's so many notes. One reviewer called it this highly caffeinated guitar playing, and he wasn't being nice. But but I think it's our music. If you listen to it first, I think our music takes several listenings for you to, for people to appreciate and understand the level we go to imbue it with. With melodies. I do think if someone that had
3: told me when I was 18 that I would still be a silent boy now, I would <laughs> laugh and think that was pretty funny. And just for the first time last week, somebody stopped me and said, Oh, aren't, are you in the silent boys? And that made, me, um, <laughs> that made me laugh
0: after 30 years of being in the band. So. Hey, David, if I were to uh, have someone whisper into my ear as my 18 year old self, it would be uh, Stay away from Wallace. <laughs> Stay away from Wallace. <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> it, it have, you have so much passion right but how can that be sustainable uh you know we all we all have our careers that that run parallel in many respects so you need, you need to have that, that the, 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 the we got to complement each other right so that's part i think if that's a secret sauce to our longevity it's that we've never had to rely on it for our finances we have our separate jobs and so 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 there's that 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 takes away the stress from oh my god we have to get this album up because because we're running out of money because you know uh that wasn't us we were uh, we had our day jobs which meant we were able to focus on our music and it the proof that our passion was genuine is is that we're still here
1: yes and that's that's amazing and still friends
0: yeah best buddies but then, <laughs>
2: yeah, John fun. is trying it's like the Illuminati John is always trying to get out of the band John yeah. Moran the drummer <laughs> yeah but it is truly based on the friendships actually if you get right down to it because the silent boys don't really go out thought of a place for somebody to be that would be a hard
3: thing to do so yeah, we're pretty lucky that we have managed to stay friends
1: for this long so. well, and a big big thank you to the silent boys for giving me the time for that interview all three members John, John, Wallace, Styles. Anyway, like I said, new material. And uh, yes, you can find it on, yeah, I think they're, they've they got a, the website, which is uh, thesilentboys.com. They're also on Bandcamp and probably on Facebook. So check it out. Um, and yeah, consume everything. Because frankly, they're fantastic. So a big thank you to them. A big thank you for you listening. This has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just go to C86Show. Also, you can um, see all the archive or listen to them even. Um, you can find that on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam. Check it out. It might just change your life. Anyway, stay safe. Have a great week.